0: Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and I'm so excited that you've taken the time to listen to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. We wanna give a special thank you to our financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to reach tens of thousands of people across the globe through our podcasts, social media outlets, online courses, curriculum, conference, and events, and tours because of your generous support. If you aren't a monthly partner, please consider partnering with us at ju 3 projectorg by hitting the Donate tab. There's an option to give online or to mail in your gift. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Every gift you give helps equip. Remember, our online course is now available at learnju 3 projectorg Our new curriculum, Through Eyes of Color, a contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why, is available on Amazon and at througheyesofcolor.com and at Jewthruproject.org. We thank you for listening and your support and your prayers. We're able to do what we do because of people like you. Thank you so much, and we hope that this episode blesses you. Have a great day. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. thank you for watching another episode of the G 3 project podcast as always i'm your host lisa fields the founder of the g3 project and today we're joined by a very special guest dr darius daniels welcome dr daniels
1: what's up <laughs> hey i'm glad to be here
0: i'm glad to have you i'm so excited you were uh on the podcast years ago uh before we had video um and yeah. you graciously agreed back then when uh, nobody knew my name. So cool. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate you uh, for being one of our first first guests um, <laughs> and your continuous support. For those who don't know who you are, just tell them a little bit about you.
1: Well, Darius Daniels, born and raised in Mississippi. Um, moved to New Jersey for seminary. Stayed there, well, um, while in seminary, got a heart a burden to plant a church, planted, uh, wow, I think, came out of seminary in 04, planted in 05, and so we're kind of a missional movement, so we've got this multi-site, multi-regional, mixed with micro-site expression of church thing we're trying out, so it's been a great journey, God's been good and faithful, and uh, we're excited.
0: That's awesome. And I see you have a location not too far from me. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. So you're in Orlando now.
1: I'm here. I'm, I'm here right now. I, see, I I got on this up top. I got a underneath this. This
0: amazing
1: <laughs> <laughs> God lives in Florida. In the, in, in, the devil lives in the summer, but in the winter, God lives in
0: Florida. Yeah, hurricanes. You have to yeah. uh you have to leave for now. Um uh we want to talk about your book. I have it here. Relational intelligence. Yes. Um, I think this is a phenomenal resource for people uh, because relationships are struggling uh, across the land. Um, tell, Tell our audience a little bit about why you wrote the book.
1: So the book is birthed out of two lanes, two streams of consciousness. The first is my personal life. The second was something I saw early on in my pastoral ministry. And it's this, people's greatest joy and greatest pain came from the same place, relationships. I saw it in my life um, and I saw it in others' lives. I saw that in some sense, my life always advanced in any other area, whether it's spiritually, emotionally, professionally, or financially. It advanced in in some way uh, when someone new came in that needed to come in or when someone left out that needed to leave out. And I saw the same kind of impact and trends in the life of people that we were serving in our church. And um, I don't know, I think it started at, the the idea started as a message that I taught. I did a message series long ago called Relationships 101. And I'm telling you that birthed something in me in terms of a desire to just really dig into the scriptures, to see what the scriptures had to say about relationships. And I'm not just going to say that desire was only internal. It was also birthed out of some holy discontent and some frustration because all of the resources that I saw on relationships dealt with either marriage or parenting. And there was not a lot out there that dealt with um, platonic relationships from a biblical perspective. And um, Yes, I just did series on it and researched it and and eventually it got to the point where I felt like, at least in my own life, the principles have been proven and tested. I felt like they were aligned with scripture and I wanted to put it in book form.
0: That's so helpful because um, we were just talking to a previous guest about the fact that when you hear sermon illustrations often on relationships, it is about marriage. So it kind of wires the brain to only put effort uh, for many people in one in one aspect. So I think that is very very crucial what do you think the church is missing it on platonic relationships?
1: so one I think it comes from uh, a, a I'm not an underdeveloped understanding of the great commandment so this book is this book um, for me in terms of the way it kind of fleshes itself out scripturally it is almost like a how to guide on how to improve the living out of the Great Commandment, which is, the, uh, which is loving of loving of God and loving of neighbor. And so I I feel like <laughs> I feel like the church um, obviously not all, but some segments of it, at least in my experience, it's kind of missing in two areas. One is this whole idea of loving neighbor simply being not being evil. Hmm. not being dysfunctional, not being disruptive. Um, and so to me, you got to reconcile that with James uh, who says, to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him that's sin, right? So managing our relationships in a biblical way isn't just about um, <laughs> not contributing negatively to someone's life. It's a little bit, little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like Kind of in that sense, we missed it. But then on this other end, um, on the other end of the pendulum, there there seems to have been, and I struggle with this a little bit um, early on, this understand, this confusion or this conflation—that's probably a better word—of selfishness and stewardship. So mm. it's almost it's almost like that if people made relational decisions that were in their best interest, whether spiritually, emotionally, financially, professionally in some way that was seen as selfish and not sacrificial. When I'm arguing that in some cases, that's stewardship. That's the the loving of self. That is the valuing of what God is doing in my life in such a way that I want to be a good steward over it. And um, so I feel like those are the kind of two, those are the two streams where uh, church probably can give more attention to this subject.
0: I love what you said on stewardship because it often... We often are are more try to be in ministry uh, more uh, selfless with our time than Jesus was, uh, because Jesus <laughs> had <laughs> Jesus had times where he pulled away, and um, it's hard to strike strike that balance. I I love what you said about stewardship there. How do you think this helps? Uh, how How does your book help us to re- think about how we talk or address conflict and boundaries?
1: Well. I believe first of all to answer the question in general I think one of the ways it helps is you just mentioned Jesus and for me he is like he's the prototype of what does it mean actually mean to live relationally intelligent and I feel like <laughs> when you look at the interactions that we get to see from him with people you're talking about conflict he yeah, had a little bit of it and <laughs> and I think the way he models it, maybe not always in practice, but in principle, is, provides us with a blueprint on how to model it in our own lives. So let's say for, um, uh, let's use r- really, let's use a, an example between an exchange Jesus has with Peter. <laughs> Peter is dis- when Peter, um, basically one translation of scripture says, rebukes Jesus when Jesus talks about the necessity of him leaving the disciples. And Jesus responds with something that I wouldn't say in practice, but in principle, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah. <laughs> so, so some people can argue oh, he's talking to Satan and not to Peter. But I, let me just use that that particular instance to make an example. The, the point that I'm making is there was a spirit of friendship that that permeated Jesus's relationship with his disciples. He told him at some point. At this point, I no longer call you servants; I call you friends. So there's a spirit of friendship that permeates that relationship. And what Jesus provides Peter with is something that I mentioned in the book is one, is a biblical character trait of a person you're going to call a friend. And that is unbridled honesty. Mm. That is a space where you can receive it because the scripture says faithful are the wounds of a friend. You trust them that they love your future and they're willing to say things that will protect your future, even if it hurts your feelings. But then on the flip side, you're able to give it with them. And um, if, watch this, honesty does not ruin a friendship, it exposes it, it Mm -hmm. Mm will, whether or not it actually was what you've been calling it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's one example out of many that, uh, Jesus gives us and that the book kind of speaks to on, on how to manage conflict, which is inevitable mm-hmm. in, life, in life and in leadership. I think it's important that believers get this right.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's so helpful because our, our culture is conflict averse, averse in the sense of if you cause me, if you say something to me that I don't necessarily agree with about myself, then you're negative. Oh, I got to get I got to rip my my circle of you but it's our friendship should be robust enough to handle those difficult conversations is is
1: what I feel like, I feel like they must be. And I think that's the first chapter of the book is on friendship because I feel like people have different perspectives on this and that's fine. It's just my perspective, not the perspective. I feel like it's the most important category. And the reason that I say that, so when I look at myself from a pastoral perspective, I am teaching to people who are part of our spiritual family, our church. Those that I don't have personal relationship with, I have no idea whether or not they're actually implementing the things I'm teaching into their life. Mm -hmm. But the people they're going to be probably the most authentic with are the people they feel the most safe with. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that's going to be their friends, not me. Mm -hmm. So friends are actually going to have, more opportunity friends and maybe mentors but friends sometimes more than mentors friends are going to have an opportunity to see things that the average person you're in relationship with is not going to see that means they're going to have the opportunity to speak truth to areas and in ways that the average person you're in relationship
0: is is not going to be so uh, i feel like it's huge i i think that's that's extremely helpful um and thinking along thinking about conflict along with uh what we do here with apologetics, I think it's extremely helpful and knowing your how you influence people um can all be tied in together. Cause I think sometimes we go into apologetics and if we don't have emotional intelligence or relational intelligence, we do more damage oh, than gosh, yes. Yeah. Um and you said something a long time ago that always stuck with me I heard in a sermon that you can't impact people you insult. Mm-hmm. So that comes from really using, doing polemics, not doing apologetics right. um, in the sense. How how do you see that as helpful if you could, if you would think what would be your fo- first thoughts on how to tie relational intelligence to apologetics?
1: Greg, so I think um, this is going to be uh, controversial, but um, it's, I'm sorry in advance. I think <laughs> I think um, I think one of the challenges that people who really um, I think so look, don't get me wrong, I think every spiritual leader, I think every spiritual leader, especially pastors, um, have a call to grow, develop in the area of apologetic. Uh, for some, this particular area is more of their primary calling. And that's needed in the body of Christ, because they not only resource believers, they resource leaders. I think the challenge with those who kind of find themselves um, with apologetics being their primary calling in the body is not their content. It's the delivery system. Um, The content may be biblically faithful, but sometimes the delivery system and the way in which Truth is communicated. It's abrasive. It's condescending. It's insulting. And the scripture says, "A brother offended is harder to be won in a guarded than a guarded city." And Paul even tells the, the believers in Colossae, "Let your conversation be seasoned with grace, so that it can minister to the hearers." So, I think more than anything else, relational intelligence kind of helps people be conscious and cognizant of the way you're managing relationships. In some cases, being patient enough to build relational equity so that you can speak the kind of truth that needs to be spoken to people. That's my, that's my two cents. That's my soapbox.
0: (laughs) No, that, that is, that is crucial because often we try to um, impact where we don't have an audience and um that leads to all kinds of problems uh, yeah. especially in the age of social media um how would you advise those who are trying to um uh, address conflict um in in the church what what ways would you would you challenge them to go about it if they don't have the relational equity
1: yeah so well, obviously there're going to be spaces where um, one, you just haven't had the time to develop it with uh, a, specific, a specific group of people. Um, you just may not have had the time. There may not be, you know, even mutual interest in developing a relationship beyond the surface. And, and sometimes that's okay. And then there are going to be times where there are specific issues that may come to spiritual leadership where spiritual leadership has to address some things that are contentious or that are causing conflict and they're doing it with people they don't, they may not necessarily have a relationship with either. So I feel like, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that you're always going to have high relational equity with everyone that you got to speak truth to or address conflict with. Uh, I do think at times it is helpful to do that. Um, But to your question, helpful to have that helpful to have that equity uh, when it comes to certain personality types. Um, uh, but to your question, I feel like, let's just use the word um, correction. Let's uh, let's use conflict as the context for correction. Not saying that when there's conflict, something's already always wrong, but I think it is an awesome, awesome opportunity. Conflict gives us an opportunity to, to see some things that probably wouldn't be exposed any other way. Um, So for me, I think it's incredibly important to realize the role correction plays in spiritual formation. And to use conflict as an opportunity, not just to resolve the conflict, but to also address the issue that the conflict exposed. And sometimes that's an immaturity issue. Now, I'm getting this from Paul. And I see this very clearly in the first part of his first letter to the church at Corinth. He is um, speaking in general to some of the conflict that they're having, conflicts over who baptized who, things of that particular nature. But he says to them, it's like the conflict exposed some spiritual immaturity issues. And he says, he says to them, he says, I know you're carnal. I know you're worldly. Because of the divisions among them. So he says the conflict is actually what's exposing another issue that I want to take the opportunity to deal with. And I feel like he deals with it masterfully. He deals with it intelligently. He gives them really practical guidance and information. And I feel like. um whatever words someone may choose to use, how he approached that, I just feel like that that's relationally intelligent and it is a model and a blueprint for all of us who are Jesus followers to
0: do the same. That's helpful. You, you have um, a part of your book. You said, what kind of friend are you? And immediately when I read that title, I, I thought of the ability to have self-awareness because oftentimes we want something from people that we don't give to others. Um, what how were you thinking? What were you thinking about when you you picked that title?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. So, one, I believe um, that one of the things I want to get across in this book isn't just a blueprint to having good friends. I wanted this book to also help people be a good friend. And um, I talked about earlier in our conversation, one of the one of the reasons I believe friendship is so important and so vital. And I feel like it's important for us um, to be that to others that um, the type of friend you are um, is is a large part of how purpose for your life is carried out. Um, so when I, when I look at what some of my friends have been to me, they have been God's grace walking into my life on two legs
0: mm.
1: and in some sense, I would not be able to, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be doing what I'm doing now, meaning doing ministry at all. Mm. Not for, not just mentors and advisors, but for friends and what they were to me when I needed them to be that. And so I feel like it's tough because unfortunately most friends don't know The impact that you never know, the impact that you're having on someone else, you know, and uh, the degree to which you're adding value for their life. So because it's so important, what I wanted to do is to kind of look at what the scriptures have to say about friendship versus the assumptions culture often makes about it. So that we can ask ourselves, what kind of friend are we? Not just, are you a good friend or bad friend? (laughs) But when the scriptures give some traits about friendship, it's are you that to others? And um, and so like an example that I use in the book is like Joab's relationship with David. Mm-hmm. People would say, Man, I want a friend like Joab. I, I want a friend like Joab because Joab is loyal and I want loyal friends. So that might be a cultural description of friendship. But I'll say, in the kingdom, it would be a little different because Joab had a loyalty, but it wasn't, it wasn't a biblical loyalty. It was yeah. an because Joab helped David destroy Bathsheba's wife. David sent the letter to Joab. So, biblical loyalty has a loyalty to your future more than your feelings, and they don't aid and assist you in self-destructive behavior in the name of loyalty. So, yeah. so Asking the question, what kind of friend are you? Is my attempt to get people to ask those questions of themselves, like, yo, is my is my loyalty is it a cultural loyalty or is it a kingdom loyalty? Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things I've I've seen uh on your social, and I, I know it's directly correlated to the book, is you talking about um how sometimes friendships can come become codependent, and it's like you don't need me right now, you need Jesus. And I can't I can't be everything to you. And um, especially when you're younger, if you 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 form codependent relationships in college without even knowing it. Um, and then when you get older, it's like, oh, you can't be all that to me because uh, you don't have the time. We don't have the time we had in college to, to be that. Um, and so you see that, but that still happens in our adult relationships as well. How? What advice would you give to people who are like, who don't understand the difference between codependent and healthy friendship?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is huge. That is huge. So, um, if a person is on the other end of a codependent relationship, I think I think this, this question is answered differently for someone who is codependent. If you're on the other end of the codependent relationship, then one of the things that I uh, would encourage a person to do is to is to understand that part of your responsibility is to meet part of a person's needs. Not only God can meet all of their needs, but there are needs that are met through people. God, he did it with Adam and Eve. So the point that I'm making, though, is I think practically what I would tell someone is it's very important for you to do your best to discern the difference between meeting a legitimate relational need and accommodating someone's preferences. Mm-hmm. So if you can draw that line in the sand, it really sets kind of it really sets boundaries and the boundaries at least protects the person from being overly codependent with you. Because, like I said, if you're the person that's actually codependent, there could be a number of different factors that are contributing to that. Some of it's emotional, and some of it requires emotional intelligence, which is self-aware, which one one quadrant of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And, uh, but, you know, that's, awareness alone is not enough. So there could be A number of different things that drives a person's codependency. So if you're just waiting on them to stop being codependent, it's not that easy. Sometimes there's some healing work that God has to do in the soul of that person from wounds in the past or things that they didn't get in the past. They should have got emotionally. That's driving that codependency. But the only thing you can do if you're on the other end is not try to fix the person, but it's to set a boundary and to make sure that you discern the difference between needs and preferences in between what should be given by me and what can only come to you through God,
0: mm-hmm. that's helpful. Um, something else that I thought was so helpful um, was you and your wife did a um, a clip about the book, and you were talking about um, putting not a wall around your heart, but was it fences or, or something, a fence around your heart yeah. um, to differentiate? Like I'm, I'm not keeping. I'm not keeping everybody out, but I'm being selective.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it is. It's based on uh, Proverbs, where the scriptures encourage us to guard the heart, because out of it flows the issues of life. And um, the. We felt like it was important to. uh, And I think it was a Henry Cloud analogy. I think he used this imagery to to make sure we're not making assumptions about what guarding looks like. So the scriptures tell us to guard, then we can be presumptuous and assume that to guard means to put up a wall. And uh, when when many people do that, I think we're all to some degree uh, guilty of that because a wall is sometimes more often than not a reaction to pain, you know? Um, but what's incredibly important It's another difference between a wall where no one gets in and a fence where you choose what you allow in and what you allow out. And so to us, um, to me, rather, um, that speaks to the idea of stewarding and taking personal responsibility for our relational life. And for the emotional impact that relationships can have
0: on. Awesome. I think that's that's very, very helpful to note, because I think most people we live on extremes. So we go to everybody's welcome. Nobody's welcome. And the boundary and the fence is the medium. Um, What other things about this book that you would like to share that we haven't already discussed?
1: You know. what? A couple of things. Um, but i guess i'll talk about one and that is this the, the book is so this is the axiom that that the book is uh based on it's it's based on this whole idea that if you don't get uh, um it you can't get life right if you're getting relationships wrong it's just it's that simple um i'm not saying you can't be successful as culture divine success i'm not saying you can't get Resources have professional accomplishment. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't get life right, meaning experience life as your creator intended if you're getting relationships. Wrong. And when it comes to most people and their relationships, by the time they're reading a book like this, they already got them. It, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you're already <laughs> you already got them. They're already labeled. And sometimes books like this help you see, okay, this isn't what I've been calling it. And in some, in some cases, um, they help you see, you know, this isn't as healthy and helpful for me as I thought it was, meaning a certain relationship. So to me, the one thing I would say I would want people to kind of think about, I think it's kind of a hidden, or maybe a probably overlooked aspect of the book, is there's a section in the book that helps with realignment. Mm. There, there are times when we all... It's almost like um, sometimes if, if, if I've been teaching, let's say, like our relationships or financial stewardship or something like that at the church, uh, someone always without fail says, well, I wish I had known this before X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I've already done stuff with my money. Now you're telling me, OK, so I feel like relationships are the same way. So the book, there's a section of the book on alignment that helps people practically who already have relationships. Some of those relationships have long history. Those relationships have already been labeled. It helps people actually, one, define the criteria that that they need for realignment. But we also give scripts for conversations that you have, have to have. Regarding realignment. Now it's not a script that we expect someone to read like a talking <laughs> points.
0: You know somebody gonna get this book and read it in front of a friend. Saying, <laughs> they're they're- they're on the on the phone, just <laughs> turning to the page,
1: they're gonna say, I "Greatly value our relationships and the contributions you made to my life." <laughs> Yeah, we so have scripts to kind of help people who may be on the end of two extremes. There's some people who really have a, they don't have a problem speaking the truth. They have a problem doing it with love and grace. Then you've got others who don't have a problem extending love and grace, but they do have a problem being as truthful as they need to be. And so, like you said, some of them are conflict-averse. So we believe that we need—we believe that we need to take a, a step. To kind of help people with realignment conversations. And so to me, that's one of my favorite parts of the book because I'm a bit of a pragmatist. And that was, it's very, 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 very practical in my opinion.
0: That's helpful because even though I was joking about the script, I think people struggle because they feel like concepts are abstract. And so yeah. it, they realign and they actually need the step-by-step script to yeah. even see what it what it looks like for their life, because they've never had that conversation, especially if they, if their home was conflict diverse and they didn't talk about things. Mm. So they need the script to, to even just do that. Um, how, how can the people, how can people get, get your book?
1: So it's, um, everywhere books are sold, they, uh, so Amazon and Barnes and Noble and christianbooks.com. Um, it should be in some airports, um, I think uh, as of right now, I think some Barnes and Nobles have them on back order in stores and uh, Target has them on back order in some stores. But, um, yeah, typically you should be, be able to go into a Target, a Barnes and Noble or anywhere online, iBooks, and you should be able to get this work.
0: Mm-hmm. And you also have a relationship e-course, right?
1: Yeah, we do. We actually released one part of it. Um and you know this. This is really interesting. I'm going to tell you why we did it. Um, this is what I've learned now. Like, so obviously, some people are readers with words words on pages, like me. So that's that's me. I can you give me a book, I'm fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not really a big audible guy, but a lot of people are audible. I mean, that's the the audible version of the book is it's the 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 way it's moving is really really surprising. But what I've learned is. Some people are conversational learners. Mm-hmm. So kind of this historic didactic approach to information doesn't necessarily register with them the same way. Some people learn primarily through statements, so they're going to remember statements, and stories. They're going to remember stories. So, what I decided to do was to take this approach that was not Um, small groupish. I didn't want it to be historically didactic. I wanted to take the four categories of relationships in the book and sit around a table. So we took some of our spiritual family members from our Orlando church and uh, we did four different sessions where we actually had conversations about the content. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also, meaning the people in the room, got an opportunity to push back to ask questions that I believe are reflective of some of the questions that some people are going to have when they read the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's, that's the way that we did it. That's the reason that we did it. We released part one of it to everyone that pre-ordered the book. There are actually four parts that we're going to be releasing. Um, the entire e-course is going to be available uh, on our website, uh, the website for the book is DariusDanielsRQ.com. And um, so we're going to put that e-course up there. And we also have a free relational intelligence assessment mm. that um, is on there also so that people can kind of think through and talk through uh, how they feel about um, uh, their relational intelligence with others based on the assessment.
0: That's helpful. And I love that y'all have the conversations. I learn best through conversation. Yeah. Uh, I learn in seminary more going to office hours, talking back and forth with my professors than I ever did sitting in class. So that conversation yeah. <laughs> conversation was, was helpful for me. And that's probably why I'm so motivated to for our conference to be conversational um, mm-hmm. because I, I learned, um that's one of the ways I learn as well. Um, yeah. How can people, uh, find you on social media
1: well everything is darius daniels is because my parents got creative with my name on the easy to find it <laughs> was, so i didn't appreciate it when i was learning to spell but i love it now and so <laughs> it's d-h-a-r-i-u-s daniels and so everything is that um facebook and twitter and instagram i think i don't know if they took it down but if my space is still up on my space. Here. <laughs> is
0: there well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for being a guest. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Remember, um, you could also for our our listeners, you could get our new um Black Apologetics Curriculum through Eyes of Color at Jew3project.org. Um, merch is there. You could also become a monthly partner at Jew3Project.org by hitting the donate tab. Remember here at the Jew Three Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher